The familiar story of the testing of Abraham's faith brings together the conflicting elements of suffering and God's sustaining love. A reading from the book of Genesis. God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and sent out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father Abraham, Father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, The fire and the wood are here, but, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The word of the Lord. The psalm appointed for this morning is Psalm 13, found on page 4 in your liturgy booklet. If you please rise and sing with us.
followers of Jesus die with him so that they can likewise be raised with him to eternal life. By God's grace, we are no longer slaves to sin. A reading from the letter of Paul to the Romans. Do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Should we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you, are, whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, having once been slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, and that you, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. But just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness for sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So what advantage did you then get from the things of which you now are ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the advantage of you, the advantage you get is sanctification. The end is eternal life, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The Holy Gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said, whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, truly I tell you, none of these will lose their reward. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Be seated, please. At the beginning of this past church year, um, the Episcopal Church switched from the old prayer book lectionary to the revised common lectionary. Um, and in the old prayer book lectionary, we could avoid the story of Abraham and Isaac, and we did. <laughs> in the new revised common lectionary, we can't avoid the story, and so here it is. It's one of the stories, one of the readings assigned for Good Friday, and I never pick it on Good Friday. Um, but here it is on a Sunday. 
Um, we read it Wednesday, and Nathaniel said to me afterwards he could just feel his blood pressure rising during the reading of it. Of course, we get to the end of it and we say, the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Oh, yeah, really? Um, I have a number of questions about the story, and I'm not sure I can answer any of them. What was God thinking anyway? And what was Abraham thinking? Um, We have all of these wonderful stories of Abraham arguing with God. God is setting off to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, well, what if you find 50 righteous people? You won't do that. And he bargains him all the way down to five. Why isn't Abraham bargaining here? What was Isaac thinking? Um, I I read the rest of the Abraham and Isaac saga just for fun. And I noticed that Abraham and Isaac never speak again. Gee, I wonder why. Um, Just a really tough story. Um, Three observations I want to offer. I'm not sure that I answer any of these questions, but three observations I want to offer. In the time of the Old Testament, um, at least in the back of cultural memory, is the awareness that child sacrifice has gone on or is going on. The prophets speak again and again and again to the kings of Israel and Judah, um, exoriating them for allowing that practice to to happen. It's called passing a child through the flame to Molech. And um, over and over and over again, they scold uh, for that happening. They also say, our neighbors may do that. Canaan and Moab and places like that, our neighbors may do that, but we don't. We don't do that. Um, so, So just stop it. Even the Passover story carries a little hint of that. The Egyptian, the firstborn children of the Egyptian, Egyptians are killed, whereas the, the Hebrews are saved because of the, the blood on the doorpost. Um, so somehow this has stopped for us. You read Leviticus and, and some other passages in the law and discover that the firstborn male animal is always consecrated to God. If it's a sheep, then you kill it. Um, and eat it. If it's a if it's a beast of burden, um, and you need the beast of burden, you redeem it with a sheep. If you can't redeem it, you break its neck. Um, and even firstborn male children are consecrated to God and have to be redeemed by a lamb. So I wonder if there isn't some cultural recollection of how it is that we quit doing that, and why it is that we quit doing that, and did this other thing instead. Um, When God sends Abraham off, he says, go to Moriah, to a mountain that I will show you. It turns out to be Mount Zion, exactly where the temple will be built. Imagine the resonances in the minds of people making their journey up to Jerusalem with the Passover lamb to sacrifice the lamb on the same mountain where God stopped Abraham from sacrificing Isaac. On the mountain of God, it will be provided. We don't do that anymore. This is how it quit. The story also comes down to us in a form, the form that it has in our Bible, was set down during the Babylonian exile. The whole Abraham saga, in fact, is written down during the Babylonian exile. Imagine how people would be reading this in Babylon. First of all, God says to Abraham, leave the land of your birth, leave everything familiar to you, and go to a land that I will show you that you know absolutely nothing about. You are cut off from your past. 
The Judeans in Babylon would know what that felt like. We are in a land that we know nothing about. We are cut off from our past. And now God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and kill him. You are going to be cut off from your future. The Jews in Babylon would know what that felt like, too. We are cut off from our future. We have no idea what God has in mind for us. Can we have faith in this circumstance? Abraham had faith, and it worked out. So yes, we can have faith. Surely God has something in mind for us, just as he did for Abraham. Third observation. In exile, there is a great theological debate going on, and it's only because of this debate that we actually get the Bible. People had to write down the debate and, and sort it out. The debate is between what's come to be called the Deuteronomistic theology. Isn't that a wonderful word? Um, it comes from Deuteronomy, obviously. And you read the story of Deuteronomy, and God says again and again, if you are faithful to my commandments, you will live in the land that I am about to give you forever. But if you are not faithful, I will cut you off. From the land. I will punish you with the rod of humans, and I will cut you off. Of course, Deuteronomy is written during the exile as a way of explaining why this horrible thing happened to us. Why are we in exile? Because our kings, who were no princes, did all kinds of horrible, rotten things, and God has had to punish us for that. There's another theology struggling with that one, also in the exile, and it's the theology of Isaiah the prophet. And he writes the story or the songs, the poems of the suffering servant, which Christians have taken and applied to Jesus. Behold my servant whom I uphold, he suffers for the sins of many. It's not his fault that he suffers, but it's so that God may do a new thing. And the new thing is so that all nations may come into the house of God. When Israel returns to Jerusalem, everyone will come with them into the house of God. We sort of think we're past that Deuteronomistic theology, but I tell you, we're not. Every time I walk into a hospital room or into a circumstance where something tragic has happened, the first question on everyone's lips is, why me? And the answer, of course, to that question is, because I've done something to deserve this. That's why people ask the question. The Isaiah is saying, no, that's not why things happen this way. Imagine the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham thinks that he has done something horribly wrong, and God is telling him to sacrifice his son as a holocaust, that is, as a sin offering. Whatever it is that he's done, only Isaac will satisfy it. So he sets off to the mountain where that sort of thing happens and gets ready to do it, and God stops him in the process and says, No, that's not what I had in mind. Take your son back and go discover what I have in mind. Now, of course, just next to this story in the Abraham saga, and we read it last week, is the story of Hagar and Ishmael. Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael out into the desert, thinking that that's what he's supposed to do, and God rescues them and says to Ishmael, I will make a great nation of you as well. There's the Isaiah theology. When we are restored to the temple, all of God's people 
all people will enter the temple. Think of what that felt like. We thought it was our exclusive property. We thought the promises of God belonged only to us. We screwed up, and so we have to suffer for that. And God says, no, they were always intended to be everyone's promises. You have to surrender that feeling of exclusivity that it belongs to you, and that's going to be painful. But you get your son back in the process. So often when we make our offering to God, we make it because we think God is coming to get us, because God is retributive, that we have to satisfy God. And God says, no, that's not the point. You surrender what you surrender to me in order that I give it back to you so that it may meet my purposes for the whole world. Not that you should suffer, not that you should be punished, but that all people might come into the temple. It's a powerful story. It works on our imaginations. Um, we don't like the way it's written, but I think if you put it in that context and see what it might have done for the people who first wrote it down, it functions in a different way. It's not about us being punished. It's not about us sacrificing our children. It's about us letting go of what we thought were our cherished dreams that belonged only to us so that they might belong also to the whole world.